Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 39, and it was recorded on Thursday, April the 16th, 2020. I am Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our sixth episode of 2020. We were joined by Ken Mayhew, Chief Executive Officer at the William Osler Health Foundation, Judy Neiser, Chief Executive Officer at the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation, and Jessica Veach, Manager of Donor Recognition at Sinai Health. Our topic, Healthcare Philanthropy in the Age of Coronavirus. Healthcare foundations have had their major events canceled. They've seen their missions evolve from healthcare to humanitarian. Masks, gowns, hotel rooms, pizza, and Timbits are now part of healthcare gift giving. Join us as we discuss one of the most extraordinary impacts on healthcare philanthropy in living memory. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 39 of Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Vitreo. This is our sixth episode of 2020. Our topic, healthcare philanthropy in the time of coronavirus. It was originally titled Trends in Healthcare Philanthropy. And to be fair, I hope we also get to talk about that. Uh, we've invited three top healthcare philanthropy leaders from across the country to join us. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Let's get started. So first, joining us from Toronto, we have Ken Mayhew. Ken is the president and CEO of the William Osler Health System Foundation. This is Ken's second visit to our podcast in less than two weeks. He joined us last week when we spoke with him and Kay Sprinkle-Grace, Tom Ahern, and Angela Chapman. It was a great conversation about fundraising during the time of COVID-19. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you. Glad to be here, my friend. After last week's show, Ken, uh, Ken shared with me an internal video that was done by uh, one of his team. It was a montage of all very current images from the hospitals and communities they serve. It showed hospital workers and hospital workers and uh, community members stepping up to support uh, uh, the war on COVID-19. It was really beautiful to watch, Ken. What struck me while watching it was the diversity of communities um, that the Osler Health System serves. Ken, before we get into the main topic today, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we can talk, if you can talk a little bit about diversity, how it informs your day-to-day -day work and your work on behalf of the, of the profession. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to do so. And yeah, absolutely, Vincent. Uh, you know, William Osler Health System is northwest part of Toronto. It's an extremely diverse population base. More than half self-identify on census as being visible minorities. Many are new to Canada. Uh, so we gain the richness of that, right? So we have people with different uh, notions of philanthropy, different interactions with healthcare systems, you know, dependent on uh, where they may have been before they, before they came to Canada. And um, that's fantastic. Like we literally have people who support us from Gurdwaras and temples and mandirs and churches and, you know, rotary lions, all those kind of things. And that makes the job really, really rewarding, especially in a challenging time like this, when you, you know, you sort of know that you don't walk alone. And the other thing about it that I think is really interesting, and I, I don't know if anybody else saw it, but I actually, of all people, 
Uh, I don't mean to be negative about that, but uh, not everybody thinks that a, th a thought leader in a time like this would be the queen. And the queen put out a little message of hope and inspiration, you know, just kind of letting people know this too shall pass, we shall overcome. And I think what's really interesting about that, right, is she was talking about people of all faiths and of people of no faiths, uh, nonetheless coming forward to do their part, uh, wanting to be of service in a time of crisis and doing what they can. And per the video you saw, Vincent, for us, that literally is from, you know, PPE, protective gear for staff, to pizza. Like, it's all over the place. And certainly a lot of donations, most of which are very modest levels, but they're so valuable and important, not just financially, but so that our healthcare workers know that they don't walk alone. I think it's an I think it's a great time to be doing what we're doing. I think it's really important. And through leaders like yourself and Vitreo and, you know, AFP and other entities, uh, I think we have a real opportunity to do our part for a pretty unprecedented global situation. So, yeah, that's my two cents worth. Well, thanks, Ken. I remember that Queen's video. She said, we will meet again. <laughs> so that's, that's right. great. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, thanks, Ken. Uh, next, also joining us from Toronto, we have Jessica Beach. Jessica is the manager of donor relations at the Sinai Health System. This is Jessica's first time on our podcast, so welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, just had to figure out my, my phone here. So, uh, thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. Great. I have been getting to know Jessica because we're working together on a large donor recognition project for Sinai Health. Jessica mm -hmm. is very committed to donor recognition and donor relations, both at work and as a profession. Jessica, you are currently a board member with the Association of Donor Relations Professionals, ADRP. Before we get into the main topic for today, can you share with us a bit about that organization? What's it about and some of the activities it's engaged in? Okay, um, absolutely. I'm happy to. Um, as its name suggests, it's the Association of Donor Relations Professionals. So under... We have our larger philanthropic associations, AFP, AHP, and they're wonderful and amazing, but donor relations in and of itself, stewardship and donor relations, really has grown as a profession and really has identified it as a very unique and specific skill set. And the Association of Donor Relations Professionals came out of that, out of the need for networking, idea sharing, resources for that specific sector of the overall profession of fundraising. So um, we're a pretty large organization. We are international. Um, I'm not going to lie. The international part, it is 90% American and 10% outside of the States. Um, but it's a really robust and really amazing community. The thing I love about donor relations broadly and ADRP specifically is we're all in it to support each other and lift each other up. People aren't proprietary about this is my thing and I can't share that practice with you. Everybody is incredibly open and helpful and wonderful. And so we're very lucky. And through that, in the particular you know, international situation that we find ourselves in now, one of the very first things that we realized was that donor relations was actually going to become front and center for a lot of foundation work. We had to have ways to communicate with our donors. We had to have ways to reach out to them, to calm them, to still make, let them know that they are part of the family and keep them engaged. And one of the very first things that um, the Association of Donor Relations Board did was we did a roundtable uh, video chat and 
uh, put it out to our membership just to say like, how are you all feeling? How are you all coping? What are some of the you know opportunities that you're seeing now? What are some of the challenges that we think we're all up against? And it was actually very strongly received, even though it's a incredibly informal, doesn't really get into the nitty gritty of our work. It's just about how how we need to recognize our sort of limitations right now, but also our opportunities to be able to engage all those amazing community members, like Ken mentioned, who are bringing in pizza and who are, you know, uh, bringing in supplies or who are actually donating cash gifts or who are the staff actually raising staff morale by sharing, you know, we're spending a lot of time stewarding our staff right now. And it's, it's been a very interesting thing. And so the work of ADRP has really sort of spiraled into um, leaning into those types of things. How do we transition our events? What does impact reporting mean right now? How do we stay connected? And so it's been a very interesting time right now. And we're also looking at making our international conference virtual. So that'll be interesting as well. That's awesome. I know I, I started to get to know a little bit about ADRP um, through the, the work I do in naming. So it's been great to, to see what's going on. And that video you talked about, folks, um, uh, the listening audience, et cetera, et cetera, you can probably, I don't know if it's still on the ADRP site, but if, if you it try is. and, is it? It is. Great. And I, I can send you a link to it. As I well. would recommend going to it. it. It gives you a nice mental health break of seeing professionals being uh, vulnerable around the table in the very early days of social isolation. <laughs> it was really, really lovely. So thanks for that. Um, looking forward to, to doing something with that virtual conference. So thank you, Jessica. Finally, thank last note, but not least, we have Judy Neiser joining us from Prince George, British Columbia. Judy is the CEO of the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation. Judy's no stranger to being interviewed by the media, but this is her first podcast, I think, and I'm humbled that she agreed to join us. Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast, Judy. Thank you, Vincent. As some of you might know, I grew up in Prince George, and Judy and I had many of the same friends growing up. We also knew each other back then, but that was a long time ago. Judy and I have kept touch professionally via email um, over the last few years, but yesterday, as part of the show prep, was the first time I'd spoken to Judy in almost 40 years. Unbelievable. I'd say a little bit longer than that, Vincent, but yeah. you'll go with 40. I, I, wow. I'm, just, I'm just trying to be, you know, nice. Uh, it was lovely, and we spent a good time just sort of catching up. Um, it was great to catch up, and I'm very glad to have reconnected with you, Judy, so I hope we do a lot more of that outside of this show. Um, we're going to hear about your thoughts and adventures in healthcare philanthropy in just a few minutes, but before we go there, I know your foundation operates a little bit differently than how large urban healthcare foundations operate. Can you share with us a little bit about who you serve uh, and the geography that your foundation covers? Sure, Vincent. So it's my pleasure. Good morning, everyone. Um, so the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation operates in the area that's known as Northern Health. So, so the province has five health authorities and the Northern Health Authority ends up being a region that we service. And uh, originally when the foundation was started, it started like many others where it was a hospital foundation. But given the rural nature of Northern BC, I think in 1996, I believe, uh, they started looking at changing the boundaries. And so this area, if, if you can imagine anything south of Quinell to the Yukon border, Haida Gwaii to Vailmont, is an area roughly serving 290,000 people, but 600,000 square kilometers. Um, so to put it into city context, there's probably one cost 
that's just the size of the area. So, so everybody pretty much comes into the area for any major health concerns, or they end up being sent elsewhere. So if you're on the coast, you probably end up going to Vancouver, Dawson Creek, Fort St. John, or you might end up going to northern Alberta. Um, but I mean, the idea is you want to keep families as close to home as possible to their networking. So the community becomes a really large um, area of opportunity, but also an area of concern when you're trying to deliver the best healthcare possible to the areas. And I really do applaud Northern Health's efforts. Um, they do an amazing job of understanding that everybody deserves to be serviced by healthcare in the same manner, regardless of where you choose to live. And um, so in our funding mechanism of funding anything other than what the government would fund in those areas, there's roughly 135 facilities and uh, probably three major hospitals, but UHNBC being the largest one. So the University Hospital of Northern BC is a university hospital campus. It's uh, got directly attached to the Northern Medical Program at UNBC, which produces 20 to 25 physicians every year. So it's something that we're very proud of. We believe that if we train physicians in the North and educate them in the North, then we have a better chance of recruiting and retaining them also in the Northern region. So that's our area. It's, it's quite exciting, and it has its challenges. It sure does. Now, in the pre-show, you you used a, um, an analogy of uh, it's the area the size of, did you say France? The country of France, basically, is what the, the area services are. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's a pretty big area. And, uh, and, and I know in the pre-show, uh, when we were doing some of the prep for this, you talked about, uh, you know, you've got physicians in places like Haida Gwaii who go to see patients sometimes in a canoe. They, they do. I mean, I, I guess part of the attraction to physicians who want to who want to live in rural areas. I mean, there's some beautiful communities where there's no problem attracting physicians because of the lifestyle it offers as well. But yeah, they actually do. They travel by canoe. It's massive. It's a one little outpost station, and the physician there travels by canoe. So, I mean, it's, it's just getting the best healthcare, and and people seem to come up with really innovative ways to do this. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, uh, you know, there's a diversity of, of healthcare systems across the country, um, everything from what you've described to the large urban centers. So I'm glad that we've got that diversity on the show. Um, looking forward to that. Okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 39th podcast. Our topic, healthcare philanthropy in the time of coronavirus. The WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic on March 11th. We are recording today's podcast on April 16th. Over the last five weeks, we have watched the world engage mostly willingly in the largest human behavior movement in history. We've seen countries close their borders, hockey arenas and football fields are dark, and much of the world, including the four of us, are five of us, uh, four of us, I can't count today, are working from home with our spouses, with our kids, and with our cats and dogs. And this has been and is extraordinary and also challenging. As of this recording, there have been just over 2 million confirmed coronavirus cases worldwide. That is half a million more than when we did this podcast last week. Uh, and sadly, there have been over 137,000 deaths. These are truly unprecedented times and where we end up. And as we come out of our physical distancing and work at home rules right now is pretty uncertain. Today, our topic focuses on healthcare philanthropy. Yes, we are in the middle of the coronial age, but we can also see the light. I hope we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. 
the world has shifted the nonprofit world even more so, and healthcare philanthropy arguably even more than that. Historically, heavily focused on funding medical equipment, new programs and capital projects, often through large galas and other public events. Healthcare foundations have seen their major events canceled and their missions evolve from one with a strong healthcare focus to one that is now also has a humanitarian focus. Pallets of masks and gowns are now being dropped off. Hotel rooms are being offered to workers so that they're not a risk to their families at home. Pizza and Timbits are brought to hospital workers regularly. And parades of first responders signaling their admiration and support with their sirens are a common occurrence around our hospitals. Even our folk heroes are changing. Chief medical officers of health in Canada now have Facebook fan pages and lines of clothing with images their images on them. Um, so, I mean, with all that backdrop, Ken, can we start with you? Yes, you are in the middle of this, being uh, with a community healthcare system in Canada's largest city. Uh, looking beyond the day-to-day, what will healthcare philanthropy look like when we come out of this? What will remain and what will likely change? I appreciate uh, the question. I can't really claim to have a complete answer, but I do think that you provided us a few clues in your opening comments, which is I do think first off that it will change. Uh, I don't think that it will return. I think as uh, as Jessica mentioned, a couple of us have had to cancel, you know, some of the traditional large events that have constituted uh, certainly uh, the signature day of the year, uh, oftentimes for hospital foundations. I'm not sure that we're necessarily going to see as much of that anymore. I think that anybody who wasn't sure of the importance of having quality health care close to home, uh, even if in, in Judy's case it's not physically that close to home, uh, won't need to be told that story anymore. I think there'll be a long time where we're going to uh, uh, have a, you know, a bit of a, a half-life from this, right? And the good and the bad of that, both. So from our perspective, I think that, um, you know, well, giving, uh, I remember someone telling me that Giving's not neuroscience, like it's not really complicated, but it is neuro, right? It is emotion-based and we have a tremendous amount of collective passion and I would say perhaps a bit of grief uh, around this pandemic. And those of us with the privilege of doing the work that we do, I think are tasked with um, making sure that we continue our good works, uh, but do it in a way that I think is sensitive to the fact, and I think I've said this to you before, Vincent, that people are drinking from an emotional fire hose. Like there's a lot going on, you know, we don't need to sort of reaffirm for them, overly state the importance of the work that we're doing or that our healthcare heroes need help. They know that. So I think rather it's a way to make sure that we're effective uh, stewards as per Jessica's expertise and, um, and that we're pivoting. And I don't know if you want me to get into specifics, but there are a couple of things that we're doing that are quite different, Vincent, than we might have been doing a few, you know, even on the 11th of March. Do you want me to give an example or two? Would that be helpful? Yeah, give us an example or two. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, swing across the country when you're done and get some feedback from an area that is is not seeing as but also has some interesting challenges. But Ken, share us with some examples, and then we'll we'll swing over to Judy and then back to Jessica. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, one of the things that I thought about a little bit, and this is not for everyone, but I can certainly say for us, it's sort of a, a mid-sized community hospital foundation. Uh, we've been campaigning, so we've had to build three facilities in the last 15 years, right? So that means that you're pretty much singularly focused on transformational support. 
it's kind of what you need to do to try to raise the levels of funds that are required for these big builds. And I think perhaps we've understewarded and underappreciated some of our friends and neighbors who are annual donors, you know, at more modest levels, like the the people who are giving us $50 a month, but perhaps for them, that's a stop and think amount. I think there is an opportunity now for us to build a movement of philanthropy, to have something that extends far beyond the half-life of this pandemic, you know, all things being equal. Um, and so that we can actually come out of this in a way with a, with a larger constituent of friends and many of us, and certainly uh, I understand the reasons why, but certainly at Osler, we've been so concerned about cost of fundraising and, you know, and efficiency and all the rest of those things. I, I'm not sure we paid as much attention as we could have to some of those groups. And I think just because everyone right now is leaning in, wanting to do their part through pizzas and, and PPE and, and a, maybe a first time gift, I think there's a real opportunity to to express gratitude to people and to make sure that we come out the other side as more of a more of a movement, I guess, rather than sort of saying that maybe, but then, you know, going back to the usual suspects, right? The five or 10 friends who kind of always help us get out of this. And I, I think that could be something that happens uh, as a profound change. The second one is I think that digital will probably move to become even more important because we've seen um, those shops who've been able to mobilize and ask for support virtually become quite effective. Uh, I teased my CFO yesterday that this is the first, uh, you know, uh, wire transfer campaign I've ever been involved in. Like people don't want to give you a check, you know, like they do not want that. So that's never really happened before. It's never happened for like a family of my size, a modest family of four, you know, there might be some sophisticated donors. Well, now I could see that. I don't think that's going to go away, Vincent. I think that's going to happen. Or even the fact that our teams work remotely. I think there may be some change to workflow that comes out of this where we all sort of thought we had to see the whites of each other's eyes all the time. And the only way that donors would, would support us is if that was the same was the case. I don't know that that's necessarily going to happen, at least in the short term. So those would be a couple of things I could see being uh, differences and distinctions um, caused by this situation. Well, thanks for that, Ken. Uh, I heard the idea that we're actually going to double down on stewardship, maybe treat every donor as being important, and the move to digital is a, a big piece as well. So, um, Judy, I want to have a perspective, if I could. Um, uh, it, it, you, you've got this spread out system with, um, uh, I don't know how many coronavirus cases you guys have at this time or what your preparations are, but where do you want to start? What, what are you seeing? What's changed for you? What's been the same? I guess that's a good lead in, uh, Vincent. So, you know, not to say we're immune from, from coronavirus at all, but, you know, when you think of it within the Northern Health region, the amount of people that have been even identified is so small in the grand scheme of things. And I mean, it's still large for our population, but even in the entire province of BC, there's been less in the entire province identified than there are dying daily in the States. And so for me to even fathom that, um, you know, it's not where you walk into our hospital and you see massive pandemonium or anything like that. It's actually dead quiet. And our office is actually in the hospital. And yet when you're walking through, uh, we are walking from home, but having to go in there once in a while, 
there's nothing. It's dead still. Now, part of that is actually having to free up the beds in anticipation of what could potentially happen. So getting people, you know, out of the hospital, healthier, back at home sooner, and also not doing elective surgery to occupy the beds, so keeping the general population healthy. But um, in rural communities, so much of what people do is community-based, too. So I think even though you're not constantly walking down the street in contact with hundreds of people, your um, social life and, and your networking really ends up being people-centric. And so it, it's been, I guess, a, a really large change in in a very small and very rural destination. So, you know, it's in, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I'm very proud of the residents of the North. You know, they're definitely taking it seriously and watching out uh, for everything. But I guess the other side of it for me is that, you know, we've always had the tagline that healthcare truly does touch everyone, but each of us in different ways. And I think that's still valid because the coronavirus is, is, is horrible. But in the North right now, we're seeing, you know, coming out of a winter season, we're seeing a lot more people um, dying from cardiac arrest, and we don't have the cardiac facilities and physicians we need. So I, th I think while I really um, enjoy the, I guess, the movement of Ken says and how we're moving into a different direction, I still feel that I'm, you know, still challenged with the ways to raise money for everything else that affects us in healthcare as well. And, um, you know, I think it's just going to be really different to try and find that balance. Um, you were talking about digital, and I agree, we're having to find new ways to get out to to newer um, groups of people, all ages. And digital, definitely, there's there's an age group that that really touches. Um, but I wouldn't want to give up my, you know, tea with Mr. So-and-so or my, you know, weekly meeting with other donors who mean an awful lot to the foundation and who have, have maybe not given a significant amount, but maybe have given modestly over the years that have added up but truly believe in the good work that we do. And those are the kinds of people I won't reach digitally ever. You know, and, and I, just, I feel like having that balance is going to be what we come out of it with, is a real balance of touching everybody, but the way it comes home to them. That's a really great counterpoint. And I do want to circle back to the, the idea in healthcare. Your foundations uh, were not born to take care of a single virus. Uh, nor were your hospitals at the same time we have that focus and for a good reason in many places but um, we do as you mentioned Judy there are folks uh, with who are still having cardiac events and how are we taking care of them so I, I do want to circle back to that but before we do I want to give Jessica a chance to weigh in on what's changed and what stayed the same and where are we going to come out of this so thanks uh, <laughs> um, as far as what has changed very similar to Ken, it's the amount of community support that has come up has been really powerful to see. It's been incredibly powerful to see. And it is the $50 donors, but it is the pizza and the donors who are stepping up and making sure that all staff have free coffee at both of our facilities at all times. It's a small thing, but it's a real thing. And, um, things that we've been able to do is through our Wi-Fi at the hospital, we've been able to collect quotes of the few patients who are coming through the hospital because we are quite empty as well right now um, of our general patient population. 
Uh, we've been collecting quotes from patients and visitors, or just patients, coming in that are thank you messages to all the staff of the hospital and relaying those back. And the messages are heartbreakingly beautiful and so real. It's a very powerful time. So we do have that. And we also have, I don't want to say it's fortuitous timing because that's not appropriate right now, but we were in the process of uh, launching, relaunching our unrestricted fund as uh, the Sinai CEO fund. And the timing actually lined up beautifully so that our donors are able to provide money to actually directly impact our highest priority needs, which right now, you know, we all know what is happening. We, it is our highest priority needs for staffing, for equipment, for research, for testing, for all of those pieces. So that has definitely, that was already in the works, but really has actually had a bit of a boom just based on its timing. The um, other, I would say, largest change is how much our donors are relying on us as a healthcare institution for their information. And it is really interesting. We've launched a series of telephone town halls with our chief medical advisor. And it he is so comforting in how he speaks. And Sinai is in a very interesting position because we were the central hospital for when SARS came to Canada um, all those years ago. So we're in a very interesting position because we actually have been through nothing of this scale before by any stretch of the imagination, but we had the groundwork for it. And our chief medical advisor, Dr. Howard Evans, he was the lead doctor, the chief of emergency at that point in time. So to have him be the one to speak is so connecting for our donors. And it's wonderful, but I even get, I get regular phone calls from donors who may be normally looking for a tax receipt, but now they're asking me for help in navigating the hospital right now because they have a family member who's going through chemotherapy and they need to understand who can come with them. And how. so it's become a very, very interesting time. The other side of it is, is there's an aspect of us where there's still, I can't say business as usual, but yes, business as usual, where from a fundraising perspective, we have very engaged donors who really understand the greater needs of the hospital in the long term, as well as these current needs. So we're, finding the balance and the balance is the hard part between uh, actually working with donors for those large major and transformational gifts, as well as making sure that we, to sort of, you know, Ken's point of those smaller donors, that we show all of the love and gratitude in the world to those $50 a month and the, I just want to help and please just somebody say thank you for me donors. So it's, it's been an interesting switch. I find it so interesting. Thanks for sharing that, that um, one of the things that we could pull a thread on if we wanted to was the enlarged role of healthcare foundations at this time. Uh, I know Jessica, when we were first starting this, um, well, I'll tell a story for the group. Uh, Jessica and I started our project uh, uh, our donor recognition project, the big project that we're working on with, with Sinai Health before this uh, uh, physical distancing rules came into play, but just at the cusp. So I actually had plane tickets booked 
because one of my pieces is I go and I visit the site and I take a look at what's going on. And that's a big part of what we do around the naming piece we're working on. So uh, I, I, my, my flights are booked. Jessica had done a lot of work lining up the CEO and everybody else so that I could have the meetings and all that would work out. And, and, you know, and so, and, and literally the Monday of that week was when the world came tumbling down. I think uh, Sinai health uh, internally, go ahead, Jessica. It was the week before. Oh yeah. It was internally. We had made the decision. Yeah. Uh, Vincent, you were supposed to fly on Wednesday. It wasn't okay. until the following Monday that right. the world shut down. So, yeah. but it was that tight. Right. And it was very tight. And, and the hospital had basically said, you know, uh, we're not letting folks in that don't need to be here really. Um, and so, so that, that became, uh, we, we turned it into a, a virtual project, but I remember you telling me at the time, Jessica, that, um, uh, there was also preparations being made in the foundation to uh, to clear out spaces for potential testing uh, rooms to turn them mm -hmm. into medical testing facilities, and so mm -hmm. I mean those changes and 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 having um, people from the foundation um, t uh, doing temperature checks on um, on people coming into the hospital. You know I don't know if that happened or not, but it, it was it, it was something that could have happened. And so those are mm -hmm. things that are well outside the mandate of the typical day-to-day -day fundraising shop of a foundation. Anybody want to weigh in on that? Okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would, I would. Uh, thank you for noticing that I was violently nodding in agreement. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've seen that as well. You know, from sort of the foundation being those people over there who do that thing that they do, to now we're jumping in we're all hands on deck uh, there's some areas where we actually know more people in the community sometimes than our hospital partners do right so if you need a donation of food or if you need to try to uh, wrestle up some ppe and go through the board of trade or whoever it is to try to make that happen off the foundation has those relationships we already have those relationships let alone being able to help on things like you know digital or media or mm -hmm. All those things, it's kind of, uh, some of us do events, you know, it's kind of, we, we, we're kind of hardwired to be this way and we know how to hit a deadline. So I think you're right. And maybe as well to build on um, one of Jessica's points, I also think it is going to help us in terms of having a culture of philanthropy within our institutions, not just outside of our institutions, but because many of our teams are called to serve, right? We are, in a way, we're our own, uh, as the chair of our board said, you guys are, you know, your heroes in your own way. Uh, how we kind of come across now, how seriously we take the work that we do, that we are sensitive to this being a very difficult time for everybody, I think will be remembered by those that we work for and with. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, taking temperature or helping with screening or just sharing some of the good news stories of the grateful patients in a time when visitors aren't allowed into hospitals, um, you know, we can kind of make sure that people keep the faith internally. I think that's something that the foundation kind of does naturally, and that can be part of our contribution, Vincent, as you said, right, to this war effort. Like we can kind of, we can kind of, um, because of the nature of what we do, talk about a brighter brighter day tomorrow as our friends deal with such incredibly difficult things, um, including, uh, Judy, as you said, the fact that people who need care are not necessarily getting that care because they're afraid to come or because we've canceled elective surgeries, let alone the mental health uh, impact of all of this, you know, to, to frontline workers and to the community as a whole. Uh, yeah, there'll be lots for us to do when we come out the other side for sure.
Thanks for that, Judy. I um, I'm I'm wondering. Uh, you mentioned the other areas of care. I do worry about you know we're dealing with the, a very large issue right now, and deferring all these other issues, or at least in some parts of the country, we're deferring some. I'm sure you are too, because you're making space. Um, any thoughts on um, you know because because I think that's going to it's like deferred maintenance. I don't want to use health as deferred maintenance, but it it piles up. Uh, the surgeries still have to occur. So I wonder if you have any thoughts or ideas around that. And I'm also curious, Judy, if you could share, share with us a little bit about, I know that working at home is driving you crazy. Uh, it's not, it doesn't drive everybody crazy. It's probably driving us all a little bit crazy. But um, uh, I, I want to, that idea about what does the, the future look like? Um, uh, th does it include a little more work at home or, you know, what, what are your thoughts? So Judy, I wonder if you could weigh in on both those very light topics. Sure. So uh, I guess I have to laugh, but I'll address the first one. Um, yeah, dealing from home, I, I mentioned to Vincent last night that I always thought that the dream job would be, you know, being able to work from home and that, um, you know, as I morph into sort of more of my retirement years, I've kind of thought that setting up for a, a career where I could work from home would be ideal. And I honestly am going nuts. I mean, I guess I found out that I'm far more social than I thought I was. And, and maybe it's not just the fact that it's um, working from home would be probably okay if you could have that escape and go out and at least do, you know, your lunches or your meetings and stuff like that. But I've actually been in, we were moved from the hospital on March 18th. And so for almost a month, I have been at home and literally have not gone out the house. I've got aging parents. I want to make myself available to them should they they need me and, and being out and about doesn't make sense. And not only that, if you're going to walk the talk, you, or you have to be able to do that too, right? So if people see me out, then how can I actually be saying that that we honor what Dr. Bonnie Henry is saying to the province and whatnot? So it's twofold. But um, yeah, it, it is not at all what I thought it would be. And I feel the progress is so slow in trying to, you know, even in an office environment, I've got a very small team, but just those office cats where you you know, can run ideas past each other. And, and you know, when you're trying to do things is one thing, when you're trying to undo events and undo sponsorships and, and all that kind of stuff, it's the amount of conversations on the phone that I would never normally have those conversations. I, I take a very respectful approach and want to be in person. And so to all of a sudden, you know, be on the phone, it just seems so much um, less formal, less appropriate. And, and I don't feel that I'm carrying it in a professional manner that that I should. So yeah, it, it's driving me crazy. I, I'm hoping the world will change, but I mean, in the meantime, we have to be respectful, right? Um, but yeah, this side of it. So like I say, in, in a smaller hospital and and the way, um, you know, the wait lists pile up and um, it's not just that you're booking into a hospital, you're booking the travel, you're booking staying with family. There's all the other things that go with having to go somewhere remote. So, you know, we're, we're in a hospital area where um, UHMBC operates at capacity or over capacity most days. And I'm pretty sure Ken and, and Jessica, you're similar. I mean, there's no shortage of, of healthcare needs at all. Ken, I can be nodding. Um, and I feel like when you start backing that up, I don't think it's just, well, you know, maybe you didn't really need it in the first place. And, and I'm, of course, there's a lot of mixed media out there that talks about that is, you know, healthcare is there and people take advantage of what's there. I don't think that's real. I think that we've got to this level of delivering healthcare for a reason, and people have grown to count on it. 
And for someone who has been just diagnosed with something and they're, they're waiting for it, um, you know, to have the world stop because of COVID, just, it's got to be the most unacceptable feeling in the world. And um, I, I do worry about it because for Spirit of the North, we, we really fund leading edge and new equipment that shortens wait lists, um, is more effective in accurate diagnosis and, and more timely diagnosis. So all the work that we feel we've done is kind of sitting at a standstill a lot of times because of this. And, and I don't mean to diminish COVID at, at all. I just feel that, um, you know, we didn't actually even set out to, to do any funding. We felt that there would sit back and wait and assess and see what the needs were. Because we don't fund pizzas. We don't fund those kinds of things. It, we, our mandate is very clear. It's education and equipment. And so it was actually the donors who came to us and said, well, what are you doing about it? And I was really proud of the team, actually, because there was, through Doctors of BC, some of the physicians, they had an improvement team that actually developed um, through a local company that was a PG Plastics. They've developed intubation tents so that the risk for patients and care providers would be minimalized by having these intubation tents, which isn't something that we had before. And so now we do. And this wasn't something they invented. It was, you know, produced elsewhere. But through tools locally, they were able to gauge the community, have the intubation tents, and therefore are actually in a good case scenario should this happen. So I think that the innovation and the working together and the the idea of, um, you know, not counting on all the masks coming in and not counting on the PPE and all that kind of stuff, they're actually, the health teams are really working together and they're involving the community, which is a connection I haven't actually seen before. All the orders traditionally with Northern Health go through HSSBC, through a provincial organization, provincial purchasing. And now that sort of is like not off the table, but it's more along the lines of, you know, let's do what we can and get in place what we need locally. And, and I really like that feeling for community here. That's awesome, Judy. I, uh, I want to open it up to, to the rest of the, the group today. Um, uh, do you want to do you want to uh, uh, add on to what Judy said? Do you want to explore uh, some of the other topics that we kind of touched on? We have some time be, uh, before we, we come to a close. Uh, you know, maybe another uh, five or ten minutes to chat about that. Who wants to weigh in with the night? Something we didn't talk about. Nobody's uh, we got the pregnant pause, so I, I'll I'll keep it going then. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about this working at home piece. I know that Judy, you talk about I was driving you crazy, and it is the productivity curve is is uh, definitely um, different, and the mental health issues are there, and and just the idea of not being able to go out is all there too. But I wonder if there will be some change in the corporate attitudes of working um, in an office and at home. Uh, will they be as starkly divided as they were before? Who wants to talk about that, Jessica? Jessica, you're on. Um, yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yes. So um, I agree. Yes, there will absolutely be changes in how we all work together. Um, uh, one of the things I'm finding fascinating is, again, as I said, we are still fundraising beyond the pandemic right now. And the discovery by everybody that our donors are actually quite happy to speak remotely, that our donors are quite happy to have those conversations. They don't have to come into the hospital to talk to the researcher. They're happy to have a video chat with the researcher. So 
those changes for sure, I think will ultimately allow for more flexibility and more, um, just more opportunity broadly. Um, I also imagine that Judy, I 100% agree. It's the side chats. It is those moments of being able to run by somebody's desk. It is all of those things make our work so much easier when we're in person. And so I don't think that will ever go away. Um, I hope it doesn't. One of the bigger challenges of being remote has been um, uh, constantly shifting priorities. And as much as we are doing our best at communicating with everybody, sometimes somebody is leading a project and by the next morning, somebody else is leading that project, but not everybody on the project was told that somebody else is leading the project. <laughs> so it's a little, you know, it, can be a, it can be a little disorienting. <laughs> so, um, so there are those types of challenges that we have, but as we're navigating them, I think everybody is starting to realize that our previous thing of we have too many people in our foundation, not too many people as in we can always use more resources, but physically too many people for our footprint. Well, now we may have the opportunity to be able to have more remote workers so that we don't have to have as large a physical footprint and can still staff up that way so that we can still do all of the important work that we need to do. So I think that there's going to be some interesting approaches coming forward. I agree. Ken, you had your hand up. What's up, bud? Yeah, no, I just want to build on uh, what Jessica just uh, said there. And I do uh, also, you know, to Judy's point, I think that this isn't a one size fits all topic. Like if you're a smaller shop in a community where you are the only game in town, uh, I think that, uh, the situation may be a bit different than some of the entities that are, you know, in large urban areas, right? So I don't think it's a universal for anybody. But I, um, and I also think I'm pretty vocal on this through AFP and other channels that, uh, you know, fundraising is about people, right? If it wasn't about people, it would just be Canada Helps and you wouldn't need anything outside of that. But the vast majority of funds are still thanks to a visit from Judy or Jessica or a member of their teams, right? That that makes it real. Um, that that is not transactional, right? It's transformational. So I do think that um, the fundraising professionals will continue to have a critical role. They will be the the deal makers, kind of literally. I do think on the back end we will have a remote component. I I, I think that that's probably going to be the case. And in that situation, I'm a bit worried about team. Like, I think we're in week five now, and some people seem to be loving it because they don't have the commute. Uh, perhaps they don't have to get dressed. Uh, you know what I mean? They don't have to deal with some of the politics. <laughs> I, am wearing, right? I am wearing pants. I'm wearing pants. <laughs> I'm not going to go anywhere near that. So uh, for once, for once. So, uh, so I do think there, you know, uh, and I was thinking about this a lot, like those people who are, require other people to draw their power are, are struggling. And then those who sort of are the ones who are kind of happier doing their own thing uh, probably are less impacted from it. But from us, for example, we're going to be shifting our team to video conferencing instead of just, you know, Skype conferencing, just so people can see each other. So they have a few minutes and those meetings are not about work like sometimes they're about work and sometimes we are not going to talk about work because we're you know i think we're not alone i think many of us i'm sure in judy's shop and jessica's shop as well and i know in your shop vincent uh, you're a family like it's part of who we are so 
working remote from an efficiency perspective is great and maybe from a square footage perspective is great but you do lose some of that you know and my uh my family lives in bc and i live in toronto and easter was not the way it's usually supposed to be you know so that's going to happen in our own teams as well so we're going to have to be both efficient and compassionate and that's harder to do remotely it just is so go ahead judy so, no i couldn't agree more i think um you know i don't think i would have ever gotten into this profession if if there wasn't that personal aspect involved in it um, you know, I think there's something to be said when you can see the smile on someone's face when they feel good about giving. And it is a feel good. It really, really is. And it's also on the receiving side of things and being able to be grateful. And I, I guess what I, I really hope with the world is that, you know, in a world where you can be anything in this world, it is really, really nice that people choose to be kind. And I think it's that piece of it, the kindness, the grateful patient, the, the thankfulness, um, Jessica, you mentioned you know about coffee for coffee for everybody, but you know I, I feel like are we also being a little bit unrealistic too? Because these people are in the front lines of a lot every day too, and I think that that gratefulness is one thing that it would be a real shame if it did go away. Because we've all been on the receiving end of the other side of things, where you end up being a complaints department too, and and I mean for whatever reason, and not saying it's right or wrong, but saying it happens, it would be really nice if, if now. That this has happened and, and I, I truly believe that something good has to come out of everything that happens regardless of what you face in life that if there's that much more patience that much more understanding that much more gratefulness that comes out of respecting everybody and the work they do in the world and in the community and and even if they haven't found their place in, in the community yet that they've been open to a really really kind environment in an area where people do good things for one another regardless of whether it gets recognized or not. And, that, and that's something I hope that does truly stick out of all of this. Well, that was a fantastic, uh, you know, capper to the formal conversation, Judy. So thank you for that. As usual, we have way more topics. I was about to go into, okay, let's talk about the unspooling of events and the unspooling of sponsorships, which as we found out, uh, no surprise, are almost harder than the spooling up of them. Uh, and so I think that's a whole other podcast, which we'll invite you back for. So fantastic conversations. Um, I really liked listening and I was, it was a privilege to spend time with all of you, you know, Ken, Judy, Jessica, that was fantastic. But before we go, um, I just want to give each of you an opportunity to, to share with us something you want the listening audience to leave with. Um, and Judy, you kind of let in with something. So you may have you may have given us your best there, but I doubt it. I think you've got other things that you'll share with us. So we're going to start with you, Judy. What do you want our listening audience to take away from today's talk or from what's happened or what they need to think about going forward or where they can reach you or what they can do for your foundation? Wonderful. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I guess I do speak with my heart on my sleeve, but, but I do feel that it's a wonderful world out there. And regardless of the negativity that we can see on a daily basis or choose to see, I guess, I think that, um, you know, I guess please know that that all of us at foundations are really advocating for our donors. This isn't about us. This is about the work we can do through generosity of donations and in kind. Um, you know, there's nothing more satisfying than than seeing things come together and and I guess offering the opportunity for people to do good things through us is is a really nice way to to. Uh, about the jobs we do but also make sure that there's community involved in it for sure 
Uh, Spirit of the North did initiate a COVID-19. Uh, our tagline is uh, safe at home. And we did actually end up doing that because um, our donors asked for it. And we don't know where that money will go right, right now. And I'm being very transparent about that. But we know that the needs will be great down there. Respiratory issues have always been an issue in the North with the amount of industry we have. And some of that may be solved with government funding. But I, I choose to think that there's a good portion of it that will always be needed. And I guess the one thing that um, all of us, you know, can say that when we, we take your generously donated dollars and your hardworking money, we honor that. And we honor that it goes to where you choose for it to go to. And so as an area of greatest need, you know, if it's not going to COVID, it'll be going to something that supports better health outcomes for all patients in the North. And, and that's, I guess, what I wanted to leave, you know, today with is that, you know, we honor any kind of donation, large, small, it doesn't matter. It, it's the point that we can't do what we do without the generosity of others. Thank you, Judy. That was a fantastically optimistic closing note. Uh, Ken, you have to top that. You're next. All right. I won't be able to top that, but I, I share the same philosophy. It's, I'm a, I feel very honored to be part of this podcast with my co-presenters. I'll say three things. First of all, um, I can be reached at Ken Mayhew one on Twitter if anybody's interested in connecting with me or through AFP Canada. It's kind of a thing I do, like Vincent does it. So if anybody wants to talk to somebody who's been around for far too long or just want to bounce something off anybody, I'd be more than grateful uh, to help you out if I can. And I do that on a daily basis. The second thing is, you know, please consider through whatever professional association you're interested in, Jessica's or AFP or AHP or whatever it is, lean in and be part of this. And then the final thing I would say, because I'm not sure we say this enough, we thank our donors, we thank our institutions, we sometimes understate our own value in that chain, which is people can't affect the change in the world they want to affect without us, not without someone else, but actually without us. So let's make sure that we honor ourselves in this really, really difficult time and the difference that we're making for the causes that matter to us, be they hospitals or anything else, uh, and take care of yourself in all of this. Like we, we serve others, but let's also take care of ourselves in all of this. So that would be my thought. Thank you, Ken. We did need that reminder about being kind to ourselves and, uh, and also to, to lean in. So thanks for that. Jessica, you're getting the last word today. I'm giving you the last word. So you, it's, 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 a, it's a, don't fail us. Yeah, no pressure. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so to echo, honestly, both Judy and Ken, there's the, the overall just the gratitude and the honor of doing the work that we do, the gratitude for our donors, the gratitude for the staff and workers that we support, the gratitude for our own teams and their work with us. And it is truly, truly an honor to be in this industry at any time, but especially now, it's it's so much more apparent right now. Um, and I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> um, however, and not however, as well, uh, with the idea of knowing that there are all sorts of just resources out there, you know, I mean, Ken's offer just to send him an email <laughs> if you want, but there are the associations, ADRP, AHP, AFP, that are all there to support any of the work that we're all doing from a professional level, but also from a personal level. The philanthropic community of, of philanthropic professionals 
it is one of the most giving, supportive collectives out there. And so just to be able to lean on each other for how do you unspool an event to, I just had a really tough call with a donor. Can I lean on you right now? Because I think you get it. To whatever that is, is knowing that we're all there for each other and we are all going to come through this stronger. And that we're all also allowed to just give ourselves a little bit of, of grace, give that moment of like, it's okay if I'm not you know, doing everything perfectly right now. None of us are. We're all doing the best we can with what we have. And I think we're all doing a pretty darn good job. So that's where I want to end. That's great, Jessica. Thanks for that. So with that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Betrayo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month for our seventh episode of the year when we will be visiting with Jay Love, Kelly Morris, and Brady Josephson. Our topic, COVID-19 forced us all over the digital divide. Now what? Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay sane. We look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Nicole Nardi, Katja Asomanning, and me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is produced in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Vitreo Group. That's at sign V-I-T-R-E-O group. You can listen and subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or by visiting our website, betrayogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, and hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.